And welcome to a new episode of the Geopolitical Pivot, George Cannon Roundtable. Um, we just had a luxurious uh, dinner in commemoration of two-year anniversary, honestly, of this, of this podcast. It's past Thursday, two years ago, I started this podcast in my mother's basement um, after she told me to get out of her face. So that clearly shows that when your mom tells you to get out of her face with your, your great idea to do it anyway, you know. So we're here with the crew. Fortunately, Brian is here. Um, and he might talk this time. I know. So we got I'm sorry the... I don't know Middle East. <laughs> I don't, I'm sorry I don't know Islamic history. What do you want from me? We want more, Brian. Well, I want more, okay. But we have our libations to get us through the next 30 minutes. What? <laughs> Brian just literally like brought his chair down for like three inches. But anyway, who else do we have in the building? We have a new guest. Hello, my name is Zach, and I, I'm Brian's friend, and I'm I am a layperson, but I I am a smart layperson, so I'm just gonna give some insights in from a civilian perspective. And who else is here? Dan, I'm very excited. Dan Clay. As you're holding your wine grass, that's not wine, then. That's what we can imagine. When was the last time you were on? I think the last time I was on, I spoke about how Alexander Dugan specifically has it in for the LGBTQIA community, including myself. Today, I'm excited to talk about probably some of the same things, but maybe also some different things. And it's been like about a month, right? Has it been a month? Uh, it's it feels it's like been about a month. Far too long. Far, far too, too long. Far too long. Far too long. I have missed any opportunity to get it in writing and in words. Any excuse for Vladimir Putin to come over here and try to lop my head off. That's Dan, everybody. Um, so today, like I said, it's going to be like a 30-minute episode. And we're going to be talking about the... I don't even want to call it mysterious, but it's just like the... The continual explosions, not just in Russia, but also Moldova, Transnistria, Belarus, um, and what what makes it even more interesting is this new debacle between Russia and Ukraine to determine okay, well, who's responsible for this? Um, at one part, they found like Ukraine, like parts of Ukrainian drones in Russia. But then at the same time, a lot of these explosions, they're not saying, like, oh, yeah, the Ukrainian drones are responsible for this. But neither is Ukraine, from what I've seen. Well, just look for, like, just look for, like, cheap civilian cameras inside the drones, and we could tell you uh, if, they're, if it's Russia or not. <laughs> I mean, I mean, based on Russia's history of false flags and how many times they've done that with, like, like electronic measures, it wouldn't surprise me to see them escalate to something of that nature. Which they is do weird. have a lot of motivation to conduct false flag attacks. However, I will say specifically the logistical nature of these attacks. Generally, if Russia's doing a false flag attack, they're doing it against something they don't care about. Their people. If they're right. doing it against something they do care about. Like their, their oil, oil facilities. Their capacity to manufacture tanks, their capacity to manufacture weapons. The fact that those facilities are being attacked is a sign that either... Vladimir Putin is playing a dangerous gambling game, and he is known to gamble. Or someone is swinging on over into Russian land and kicking all sorts of ass. So you guys have been following this way closer than I have. What are these 
sabotage temps? What, what are these fires really hurting? Well, the fires and everything, they've been hitting uh, factories, they've been hitting oil facilities, they've been hitting, honestly, I heard even a dam got destroyed. Even Just the facility that was responsible yeah. for the research and development, the S-300. Just outside of Moscow, not only that, but Bryansk Oblast, which is about halfway between Kiev and Moscow. Uh, not to mention the research facility that was struck uh, a fire. Mm -hmm. Many There's... of these incidents have been fired, and they have struck in the heart of the Russian Federation close to Moscow. What? That's the point. <laughs> I mean, this is a long shot, but like, what if Ukraine sent somebody in, sent a spy into into Russia to start to make these arson, arson attacks? Well, then I damn hope they're having a good time. Me too. Uh, no, one thing that I found interesting, there was some, uh, there were some pictures and footage I actually saw recently. Uh, I guess, this is only one instance, I don't know if this is happening all over the country, but I I noticed that there's been there was like some image of some graffiti <clears throat> where it showed a it showed a thing saying this is from the Russia Legion go against Putin stuff like that and like the look at certain social media stuff and when I looked into wind of change too hmm? wind of change too yeah and when I looked into the Russia Legion this is a group that is specifically Russians that are against Vladimir Putin's choice to invade Ukraine and some of them even volunteered to into the foreign legion of Ukraine. Interesting. If you're listening to this and you are working for certain three-letter agencies and you're thinking, hmm, are there some folks we could reach out to in Russia who might be willing to burn slash tires and blow some things up, maybe pour some sugar in the, uh, in sugar the uh, engines of a couple of Russian tanks? <laughs> Here's your sign. The answer is yes. So my question is, when did you become a radio show host? Because that's what it sounds like you are. You're becoming... He sounds like he's on Coast to Coast AM right now. <laughs> my dear friend, this is the first time that I've actually been on this podcast and had the wonderful opportunity to imbibe in some excellently aged whiskey. I am allowing my voice to reflect this syrupy acid effect. There is no need for and what, and what type of whiskey is it? Let's get the ads in here. This is uh, Maker's Mark 46. Yes, Maker's Mark 46. Please sponsor us. <laughs> <laughs> no, but actually. Why, why I do actually prefer Maker's Mark. I used to be a very big Jim Beam guy because, like many other people here, I was a poor college student. Now I'm a poor graduate student. But when I was in Russia, I was shocked to find how much they enjoyed bourbon. Whiskey in general, but bourbon specifically. Uh, one of my dear friends over there who I hope is doing well, I have not heard from her in a very long time, and I know things are very, very dangerous and difficult over there at this time, especially for people who think Putin should, uh, like the Moskva, go and fuck himself. Stop, um, <laughs> she was a huge Maker's Mark fan, and she said, this is the whiskey of the gods, it's the nectar of the gods. And when I had the opportunity to try it for myself, I was like, wow, I have been drinking like a bastard. This Jim Beam ain't shit. This Maker's Mark. Tennessee has some phenomenal out. liquor, but the Kentucky Maker's Mark blows it out of the water. It's very Absolutely. true. Absolutely. Absolutely. As they much do. as I'd love to talk about liquor, should we get back to the topic? Or? Yes, yeah. we should. Well, I have a question going off these sabotage effects or attempts. I want to look at the effects that could happen from it. I just want to go around the table starting with, let's go with Brian. What's the most likely outcome of these sabotage effects, attacks? And then what's like the most dangerous outcome you can foresee from these sabotage attacks? Well, in regards to American national interests, what America, um, how it would affect America? 
Well, okay, when you add that part, now I have to actually think. Yeah, uh, that's point. yeah. <laughs> but, uh... Because in the end, like, it all comes back to how does it affect American interests. Since like, when it comes to that, it's, if you're looking at it in the form of how we support Ukraine, it helps us to, it basically lessens, it lessens Russia's ability to be able to, um... It lessens Russia's ability to be able to operate in Ukraine as well as with our economic, honestly, economic warfare strategy, putting in sanctions against Russia and everything. I would say it's, it will, with the sanctions along with a bunch of factories and uh, facilities burning up, I think it just further strains the Russia economy to the point that they cannot function. I think it's testing the capabilities of uh, economic warfare. I think that I don't want this is a long shot again. I don't want another Afghanistan situation where thirty years down the line we're giving weapons to these people and they in turn turn on us, let's say because we don't want them in NATO. I think that's important that like after all this is over, we should let but, them into NATO. By them you mean Ukraine. Yeah, by them I mean Ukraine. I think we should let Ukraine into NATO and that and the no, fact no, 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 okay, no. okay. And the fact that if we don't, after all this, it's just gonna just have a, leave a real stain on relations, and especially with the, every, the whole world giving them so much equipment. That's a good point. That is an excellent point, Zach. I appreciate that. And uh, you know, really, it would be a humiliation to the uh, intelligence services and the militaries of the world if they uh, continue to just kind of provide Ukraine with weapons. You know, do this lend-lease act stuff, but. Uh, largely leave Ukraine to fight a war which, when you think about it, is defending the entire west of the world against a serious existential threat. Not it's to say that, to something you know, terrible. Yeah, not to say that the, the Russian military, who can you know barely keep their underwear unstained, are frankly that much of a tactical threat at this point. Uh, strategically, though, the risk of uh, nuclear war, of cyber war, um, you know, the risk of an escalation. I mean, Ukrainians right now are eating lead and eating some of the most disturbing accounts of war crimes that I have ever heard. Having been following terrorist organizations and their actions for a very long time, I'm seeing some of the most disturbing things I've ever seen in my life coming out of these Russian soldiers, you know, these teenagers shoved into a war zone and given the opportunity to do whatever they want. Um, and the, the world is largely letting Ukraine, um, you know, have some guns and then eat that. And I think that... Uh, Building off specifically of what you said, um, we have an opportunity now to uh, look at the threats emerging inside, in particular, uh, the, the Donetsk region, the Donbass region. For a very long time, that has actually been a flashpoint for uh, right-wing ultranationalist groups, many of whom are, you know, I, I, I hate to give any sort of positive reinforcement to groups like that, but they're fighting the Russians right now. You know, that's good. Appreciate that. You know, enemy of my enemy. That being said, um, a lot of those groups are less focused on the ideological conflict of uh, the West versus Russia, more focused on the ideological conflict of, you know, the white race versus the world, which is horrifying. And they've heavily recruited from the West many Americans who have seen this as an opportunity to get that experience that they couldn't get in Afghanistan. You know, they were the occupying force. Now they're getting a chance to fight as insurgents. Many of them are doing that and then realizing, wow, this actually really sucks, which, you know, good, it does. You shouldn't want to do that. You shouldn't want a war anywhere. But some of them are going to take that experience. Some of them might take that experience and then go back to their own countries. And there's a legitimate risk we have to look at. I addressed this in a uh, research paper recently. But there's a legitimate risk right now that many of these fighters may come back to the West 
uh, to the U.S. specifically with that military training and capability and use that in a way that puts a lot of lives in danger, and Russia wants them to do that. Um, sorry, Brian Reeves was cutting cake, but he had something he wanted to say. <laughs> what do you it's want, Brian? Cake. It is very good cake. Uh, no, the, definitely, well, I'm thinking about what um, Dan was saying about the war crimes. Definitely, we're literally just seeing World War II reimagined all in over HD. again. In H. Honestly, you're right. Into the world. In HD in general. And it's shocking. Even for me, like, just seeing some of the stuff that's coming out of Ukraine, it's crazy to think that that's still happening in the 21st century. But there's another thing that I did want to think about, kind of going back to the fires, was there was someone I remember who I look at on social media, and he was suggesting, like, not for every single case, but what if there is a possibility that some of these fires are also because of just poor management in some cases. Because when it comes to Russia, it's just like there's parts of society that are just highly corrupt to the point that when it comes to safety regulations, some parts of its infrastructure and its buildings are not kept up the code. It is true. Yeah. That, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. And then. If I remember the formula correctly, it's basically, yeah, you have you have a guy who, owns, say he owns a tank factory somewhere in Siberia, he just pays off the inspector to not, to say, give it a passing mark. As things are going, or th as things are going, excuse my language, shit in Ukraine, uh, Putin gets a little bit pissed and this up, and is wondering why tanks aren't get, coming out of these factories, and then they start sending the inspectors seriously, and then those... Those fact those factory managers are like crap. What do I do? So they decide to burn down their. They might possibly decide to burn, burn down the their own Yeah. Before we go to Dan, Zach, do you have some? Yeah. Um. Yeah, as Dan pointed out, like the possibility of nuclear warfare out of out of um, out of Donbas being like a flashpoint for that. I'm more worried about cyber warfare. Yes. Because because yes. cyber like this war is showing us what happens after that. What the cyber warfare is the real. Fight. That's the pre That's what causes all this because it, it, it ideas and words are powerful. And if you can yes. use social media as this powerful entity to change the ideas of people through extremist views, like people in in, in that region have been doing and getting these white supremacists to come over and fight in the first place, you can you can essentially like if you can control that, you can control the, the scale of the war of the conflict. You know, um, I. Uh have I, I think that I've probably previously mentioned this on the podcast, but you know I, I, I've run a, um, a role-playing based uh, wargaming sort of thing, leaning into intelligence operations, espionage, uh, Nexus folks, if you're listening, hey guys, be good. Um, but one of the things we've sort of looked at heavily is what's referred to in uh, the lexicon as memetic hazards. Um, and you know the, now what's the, a memetic hazard just to yeah, so For the a, out there. A, a meme, everyone, everyone I think, everyone listening to this podcast should generally know what a meme is if they saw one. You know, it's, 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 it's like what they say about, uh, you know, certain other things. I don't know what it is, but I don't want to see it. But by definition, a meme is a unit of language that is in some form, whether it's an image, a document, a figure of speech, a hand sign, any kind of thing that can be communicated which is then duplicated and spread almost in a viral kind of way. Like, I, you know, the term viral that we see in, the, in the, a lot of internet circles, it doesn't just mean, you know, it, it's not exclusively an internet thing. I mean, this is like, memetics genuinely are a viral thing. They spread between people based on contact, but they're social. It's a social viral experience. So a memetic hazard 
Um, you know, the traditional lexicon is that a memetic hazard will refer to something which is viewed and spread by a lot of people, which in some form causes some kind of damage, whether that damage is physical, psychological, of course, you know, it is sort of an esoteric or even uh, supernatural fictional concept, the idea that you can look at an image and lose your mind. It's almost Lovecraftian. Uh, that being said, a lot of these images that are being propagated out there by the war, um, you know, you're seeing some really horrible things. I've seen some really horrible things in connection to this. Um, I think that a lot of us have. And so those images, dedicated to this. they have a serious impact on people, uh, psychologically. But not only that, building off of just, you know, things that are unpleasant to look at, the real mimetic hazards aren't the ones that scare you. They're the ones that excite you. Because if you can look at something and it can have that influence on you to excite you or activate you in a way that makes you, in any way, willingly or unwillingly, some kind of asset to somebody else, that mimetic hazard is something that can be used to control people. And the Russians have, for a very long time, been extremely good at developing mimetic hazards that are capable of doing that. Well, two things. One, I always thought of memes as modern hieroglyphics, but I like your definition a lot better. I thought it was a lot clearer, and it really tied into the Russia-Ukraine conflict very well. So thank you for that. Thank you. The other thing I would say, too, with these mimetic hazards, it's, it's more than just a, a problem of, of emotion or you know, cutting emotion completely out of your decision to, to look at these things and how they're gonna influence you is, are these memes reflecting truth? Mm -hmm. and, and the reason I say this is there's been some stuff that initially came out of the Russia-Ukraine conflict that was just not accurate, but everyone took at the moment as being truthful. Russian warship, go fuck yourself. The ghost of Kiev, right? Yep. Snake Island. Yeah. So, and, that, Which, that's a, and they're powerful, and they're, you know, th these ones work for us, but there are some that are working for the Russians as well. But but, and, but yeah. that's the thing that those those things those occurrences, how they were described by the memes and by just just media sources, they were inaccurate. Mm -hmm. They were false. And so there are times where we have to think about things. And well, they may excite us, yeah. But we also have to think: Are they true? That's the real danger of memes. Are they true or are they false? Yeah. I sorry, Brian. Why don't you go ahead or. Well, I mean, even it's, you can't even say it's just memes, honestly. Like when it comes to the when it comes to it's basically just social media posts in general. Yeah. Like just if you, when the war started and all the Twitter posts and all the Instagrams and everything was just rushing everyone. Like I remember looking through all, sifting through all this information, you'd find stuff of like say, oh my God, Russia sent its entire air force, and you figure out, oh no, this was an air show going on in like Moscow, <laughs> like. Emotions are running high, and sometimes you got to turn off your heart, listen to your head. That's that's the big exactly. But the have. problem with like memes that lie is that you can't tell whether it's misinformation or disinformation, whether it's purposeful or it's somebody just getting the facts wrong. I've got something for you. Uh, some of my guys who may have been terminally online again. I'm very sorry. I hope that <laughs> I hope that it's quick. I hope it's quick for you. Um, this might be a little bit of a uh, you know an activation signal when you hear it, but. Um, If you recognize this, you may have been affected by Russian disinformation as far back as 2005. Now, what was that? That was a video called Serbia Strong, which has been repeatedly posted on YouTube and in various <coughs> other places. Um, its most recent public appearance 
was in uh, the Christchurch shooting in New Zealand. Jesus. As the shooter live-streamed his mass killing while playing that song, uh, he indicated in his manifesto that that song was a significant influence on him, and the video, the comment sections associated with it, were a significant influence on him that turned him towards that white nationalism that led him to do a mass killing. In the original postings of that video, which I, as a child and as a teenager, I would very frequently look into um, you know, many of the places where things like this were being posted because I wanted to understand what the most, uh, for lack of a better term, fucked up people I could think of were talking about in posting. You know, 4chan places like that, uh, funny uh, junk. To toxic I, cesspools. Yeah, I wanted to look at the cesspools. I wanted to see what they were saying. And generally, among many other things, you'd see them reposting videos like that, talking about them, and saying, wow, you know, it is 2008 or 2009, and uh, Putin, he is, as they would say, removing kebab, which is a very, very derogatory, disturbing thing to hear anyone saying. It's anti-Muslim. Um, it's the, the notion of removing uh, practitioners of Islam, removing people who are Muslims. Um, and we now have evidence, not only that Russia was pushing this through social media, this idea that Putin is hard on Muslims, Putin is hard on you know, jihadi terrorists, etc., etc., but also that Russia was specifically pushing war crimes in Syria in association with the regime, with the regime in order to get more refugees to flee into Europe and then exacerbating the pain of that so that they could take advantage of the right-wing movements that would emerge. You said a lot there, Dan. I, Sorry. I'll try, no, it's a good thing, but I'll try and tackle it, it front to back here. Songs and symbols are very powerful, as Dan said. They excite the passions, and they also affect your ability to tell if something's truthful or not. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, not just in the West, but anywhere where there's war, where there's conflict, where there's strife, those symbols and emotion tend to drown out your rational thinking process. And it's just something you need to watch for in the world as, as war and conflict become more conflict, uh, become more prevalent, particularly in the U.S. and other developed countries. I mean, I think, like, we need to, again, go, go circling back to the online space, like, things of, these, of this nature will continually pop up from not just uh, Russia, but other countries will start to probably having to do that because that's how I think at least the nature of war will change to. It'll be a mostly online space until things are solidified and in with, uh, towards a certain side's way. Do you know what I mean? No, I want you to clarify that. Are you saying war is mostly going to be virtual? I'm saying the, pre the setup for war is going to be mostly virtual with implications being put into the real world once Put, things are put in place. So just to clarify, you're saying that the causes of war will be digital. Yes. And then will play out in the real yes. domain. Okay. I see what you're saying there. I think that makes a lot of sense. Did you? No, I don't. You go. <laughs> so, um, I mean, yeah. Right now, um, digital, I mean, the, 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 the Russians have this term nonlinear warfare. Um, and there's actually a, a, a short story written by uh, you know, my, my, my favorite bastard to hate, who I believe is currently under house arrest, God willing, Vladislav Surkov. Um, it's called uh, Almost... Oh, God. No, I can't remember the name right now. Well, actually, check that. there's one thing um, I need to ask. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yes. No, no, go ahead. I'm going to look it up as you ask. So, obviously, with Vladislav Surkov, like... We've kind of I think we talked a little bit. We on did this not. Part. You we have to give me a Wikipedia summary of who he is. Um, he's a 
he's a piece of shit. We'll give us we'll give us a list from resume. I, I'm gonna say a small thing you can fill in the gaps for me. Oh, uh, I'll fill in your gaps. From what I from <laughs> what's this that <laughs> Dan's wild man. Dan the man. What is going on? I think we'll have to bleep out something. Who is my understanding this podcast? Wait a second. Okay, 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 calm it down everyone. So from what my understanding, Vladislav Sarkov was an advisor to was it, is an advisor to Vladimir Putin, and he was specifically an advisor for Eastern Ukraine and specifically oh, for Ukraine and for affairs in there. He was one. He's considered one of the main masterminds for the events that happened in Eastern Ukraine back in 2013 and 2014. Not just that, but Vladislav Surkov was bought, brought on by the administration in the Yeltsin years. Mm-hmm. Um, he was an associate of Berezovsky's, which is actually part of the reason that Berezovsky fled the country and tried to warn everybody. Hey, really bad things are about to start happening shortly before he and everyone he knew and loved was violently murdered in the UK. Um, probably totally unrelated, though. You know? Probably. Well, uh, you know how these things of go. Of course. Um, but uh, Surkov was a uh, Chechen-born, um, educated in allegedly the artillery regime of the Russian Federation, or the, the artillery uh, fa- uh, formations of the Russian Wait. Federation. However, others have insisted that he was GRU. Um, Spent some time in the Moscow Theater School, which, if you have uh, an understanding of the domestic politics, in Moscow specifically, you'll know that any kind of connection to the theater is very, very, very significant. Theater there is really, really big, very, very interconnected with the uh, local politics in Moscow. So he got involved in that at an early age. He was a PR guy in the 90s. And again, that is another kind of hot ticket. If you were PR in the 90s, your job was basically softening... Um, the entire aesthetic of the the, uh, the the Bratva and the KGB as they purchased uh, capitalist uh, capitalist industries, as they tried to break into the capitalist market. Uh, your job was to say, hey, yeah, you know, my guy might have shotgunned a couple guys in the knees. Uh, he might have decapitated the heads of a couple of women and children, but you should invest in him anyway. He's a really good guy. They do the Family same thing in New Jersey. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so I mean, like the PR guys, that was their job. And so he went from GRU to theater to PR guy. And that, that is like that is like a home run, out the park, triple red flag. And then someone said to him, you're going to be a part of the presidential administration. Uh, shortly after that, um, Mikhail Karkovsky, previously one of the richest men in Russia, um, close friend of Surkov's, for a while, until uh, Surkov wanted to be a named member of the uh, company Khodorkovsky owned, and uh, Khodorkovsky shut him down, so uh, Surkov got into the presidential administration and then had Khodorkovsky thrown in jail for about a decade. Hmm. Um, lovely. Yeah. Um, so Surkov, over the next 10 to 15 years, uh, he's considered to be the author of Putinism. He uh, shaped uh, the United Russia Party, or the Unity Party as they call it. He was the founder of that party. Um, his job was basically to prop up opposition candidates who were pathetic in order to ensure that Unity would always win. Before we go to Brian, so do these opposition candidates include the Communist Party, or is that a different? Yes. Okay. Yes, the, the Communist Party, uh, but also, you know, even the, the more liberal groups, uh, the LDPR, uh, or LDPR is not a liberal party, to be fair, even though they were considered the liberal democratic party. Uh, Zhirinovsky is a, about the biggest piece of shit you can have. Did he um, just pass? 
you know, there's rumors of his death, but he has insisted rumors of his death have been greatly exaggerated. I hope he's dead. But who's rumors <laughs> death? Zdanowski. Rumors that Zdanowski's died. Uh, if he's not dead, I'll go over there and do it like, myself. Um, but you know, but well, no, probably, what no, do you my thing. I, I respect that. You know, my thing that I'm curious about, I guess, uh, is I get like uh, my main thing is I obviously recently heard that uh, that. Uh, why am I forgetting names right now? Sarkov was house arrested, and I'm curious as to why because it seemed like here's he my was... thinking here. So, Sarkov uh, has been a foundational element of Putin's power. Um, he's been a huge ideologue in the system and the regime. However, what he was constructing was largely an illusion of democracy. That illusion is gone now, which means Sarkov had the ear of Vladimir Putin for almost the entirety of his regime. He was the architect of the Ukraine project. In fact, some accounts indicate that he actually called up Putin in the middle of the night and said, you have to send troops into Crimea right now or we are going to lose Ukraine. Other, uh, the Surkov leaks, which you can look into, readers, or, sorry, listeners, I would encourage you, re- just Google the phrase Surkov leaks. You will find yourself going down a rabbit hole that you may never pull yourself out of. There are thousands of emails, yeah. I already know one um, person hasn't gone out of that, no, I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, those... Those emails basically indicate that Surkov was not only uh, helping to, you know, he was propping up the snipers in the uh, the Euromaiden. He was the guy who paid off those snipers. He said, shoot both sides, make them kill each other. Uh, he also conducted assassinations of leaders of the LPR and uh, DNR when they were not doing what Russia wanted them to specifically. He was the architect of so much of this while, and he was doing all this while going to the peace negotiations. Um, so he has a boatload of information. And very recently, um, you know, an interesting thing happened. Russia invaded Ukraine again. And uh, Vladislav Surkov happens to know a fair bit of things about that. And uh, when Russia closed down their Western access, Surkov, who is actually a really big fan of uh, Western materials. And I'm sorry, I don't, want to, I don't want to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, just to clarify, is it this 2014 invasion or this invasion right now? So in the 2014 invasion, Surkov recommended it and was a huge part of okay. it. The most recent invasion, Surkov, uh, well, a lot of advisors of Vladimir Putin, people who knew a lot of information, they, they saw the writing on the wall. They knew you're either going to go down with the ship or you're going to get killed trying to go down with the ship. So they're getting out, as they should. And this actually creates a huge and brilliant opportunity for U.S. intelligence operations uh, because you have all these guys who know they need to get out of the country, they know they need protection. They have only ever worked with Vladimir Putin because he gave them protection. Right now, that protection is not that concrete. And Putin is very concerned about his personal security. So if there were a time to do something, it would be right now. Because his security is about to get ironclad. His control over the country is about to get ironclad. And the reason Surkov is under house arrest right now is because he knows things that he should not. And Putin wants to make sure he does not get out of the country and get utilized by some intelligence agency in return for protection. Now, I want a quick clarification here. Are you suggesting that suggesting that the U.S. intelligence community should try and depose Vladimir Putin? Just a yes or no. Like, I'm, I just want to go down this road real quick. I mean, you know, depose is a friendly way of saying shoot in the face. So you want, you want the U.S. intelligence community to try and liquidate Vladimir Putin? I mean, if we can get him fully liquid, I think that would be cool. <laughs> and, and this is Mike. No, we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. What would emerge in Putin's place? 
there are people, uh, Ksenia Sobchak, um, you know, a lot of people talk about Navalny. Um, generally, uh, you know, all due respect to the Russian people, a lot of them are very, very, very easily influenced by propaganda of the state. Uh, they did not like Putin, and then they did because they were told to. Um, convincing the people is not the issue here. Convincing the security apparatus is going to be the issue. And much of the security apparatus right now is either pledging their life, soul, and existence to the destruction of the Ukrainian state and the world, or pissing their pants. We gotta find the guys who smell like piss and get them working for us. So before we go to Brian and Zach, I just wanna clarify, so we don't know exactly what we're gonna replace Putin with, but we think he should be removed. Is that, is that what your suggestion is? I think that there are options, and I don't have a security clearance, so I can't tell you what the best ones are. But I think that it would be reasonably, I don't think that it's unreasonable to say to anyone who is capable of acquiring this information, hey, let's find out who the best option is right here, and then make it happen. When it comes to the idea of getting rid of Vladimir Putin, as much as I find everything that he's done so far, as well as what he's done to Russia for the past 20 years, grotesque and everything, I think it's a very slippery slope to get rid of someone that's basically had almost absolute power over a country for the past 20 years. The reason I say this is because the last time we saw this happen in Russia specifically, we saw 11 million people die mm -hmm. along with anarchy throughout a landmass almost the size of, well, actually larger than the size of Latin America yeah. for th four years. Yeah. And I honestly fear not just like if we, if there ever is a strategy to get rid of Vladimir Putin, that what would be the ramifications of it, as well as if we do have a strategy, if it will succeed or not. Because think about it, we weren't able to create a fully stable government. The U.S. wasn't able to make a proper government in Afghanistan that was able to last when the Taliban came in. Yes. What says that we can try to, if we were involved, to help create a to help influence or create a government in Russia, which is a larger country of a larger population, and that is my biggest fear. The answer is nothing, and we can't, and we won't, but an unstable Russia is better than waking up tomorrow and realizing that the lights, the plumbing, the electricity, and the internet don't work. Zach, what do you think? Well, <clears throat> I think deposing Vladimir Putin would only go well if things go the way we want. We can't ascertain that things will all will definitely go down the way we plan. And if we don't plan, if, if, the, if the plan doesn't work, there are so many fucking terrible options. There like, are? Think, wait, like, Sorry, go ahead. I know that Brian was talking about this about Brian a few weeks ago, and he mentioned this guy, Vlad, what was his name? Vladislav Serko. Yes, that guy was an option <laughs> for, for, for being... A replacement for Putin uh, that we would not want. Someone who actively wants to shoot nukes at the West. There are other candidates who want to do that. I, I don't know if it went that. In the uh, I think he, he might have been talking about Zhirinovsky. Zhirinovsky does want to nuke the West, yes. but unfortunately Zhirinovsky can barely make it to his car in the morning without having a heart attack, so I don't think we have to worry about him too much. But the point is, I'm, I'm, get, I'm, assume, I'm assuming there are probably other people oh, that, are, that want to nuke the West that plenty. could be put in that position of power if we would depose Putin. There are, I will say, there are a lot of people within the Russian security apparatus who would love to seize power and do some really, really dark things. Exactly. I would counter that by saying, no. Socom has access to a lot of bullets. Okay. <laughs> I, yes, but that would cause nuclear. I'm assuming yeah. no, it, it, that would it, cause it, it nuclear would be war. Extremely difficult operation to undertake. 
This I, is where I chime in. <laughs> oh, thank God. Our, our great glorious leader. <laughs> our, great, our fearless leader. <laughs> That's always going to be a risk that you take whenever we're talking about politics and the, the possible implementation of a new regime. That was always that's always gonna be a case. I mean, we have that situation every four years with elections. Yep. Um, you know, we it's just with Russia, we brought up Navalny. Other than his disagreement on Putin regarding corruption, Navalny agrees with almost everything Putin has done within his foreign affairs. Yes. Which is why I didn't mention Navalny as, like, the best candidate. Precisely. Because then Sobchak is great because, allegedly, she was paid off. And we could do that, too. Right. <laughs> but if we can pay her off, and anyone else can. China. But we have the most money. For now. The way that the G... Which that, is why we act now. Yes. But, but the way that China has been acting. Like, look at all the... Like, we were talking... Remember we were talking about Italy and how everything has a Chinese flag now? now? Yes, but China wants stability. China does not want to see... It. Fallout falling on the streets of Alexandria. But do you sure. think China would be able to take it? Would be willing to take advantage of a weakened Russia? China would not. One hundred percent. They hate each other. Any opportunity? Well, they dislike each other. Uh, right now, right now, based on the information that I have coming directly out of Russia, there is a lot of positive sentiment happening between the Russian and the Chinese population, and the Russian and the Chinese government. Like, I'm talking serious, like brotherhood. Like, you know that one poster that was like. Vaguely queer platonic, honestly, super cute. But like the two guys, like Russia and Chinese, yeah. they're holding hands. You know, there, there's like some been some fan art of them smooching it. Sends to a Russian girl that I was seeing for a while, and I think she blocked me. Dan's dating history is remarkable. So you're telling me you're sure instead of seeing like what was it? I think it was Leonie Brezhnev and Carter kissing, you could see like Vlad- Vladimir Putin and Winnie the She kissing. <laughs> Winnie the Xi is my version of Xi Jinping because he looks like Winnie the Pooh. I'm going to say that. Well, frank, frankly, I think Vladimir Trump would be pushing his fat, soggy lips up in there too. But you know. yeah, what I what I do wonder is if all this touchy feely Russia China feeling is coming from the sanctions the West has leveled on well, Russia. China and if those has were been removed. looking at the situation and saying, "Hey, at first they looked at it and they said, wow, the whole world is aligned against Russia. That's very scary.'" And then they gave it a couple of weeks, and they said, wow, the whole world's aligned against Russia. Tough shit. It's actually not that bad. Yeah, because Russia sanctions, like, look at Iran. We've sanctioned the sanctions hell out of... Sanctions don't work. Bullets do. Yes, we've sanctioned the hell out of Iran for about seven, well, not 70 years, but We've been, been sanctioning Iran off and on since, like, literally the revolution. Yeah. So the 70s, I also, like, I, 79. So I used to work for a company who, uh, where I was an intern for a company. One of the big things that they did was assess uh, risk of nuclear proliferation. So one of the things that we knew about, and that I kind of specialized with that company, was understanding what former nuclear missile facilities looked like in Russia. You know what they looked like? Tell me. Wainwright, if you go sit in the corner, grab a bottle of vodka, and down it halfway, that's the security system. It's just some fucking guy, and he is drunk. And he is very poor. He is extremely poor because he is the average Russian citizen, and he has an AK-47 that is probably not that functional. And he is just that's that's the guy. That's and there is a fence and there's a fucking hole in it. That's the way it is right now. So when people are like, "Oh my God, this will make the nuclear weapons so unsecure," it's like, well, I mean, if they could get any more unsecure than they are currently. 
you know? So are you saying that a private group could infiltrate these facilities and take a nuke if they really wanted to? If I'm being honest with you, I don't have the clearance, as I've said before, but I'm pretty sure that it's probably already happened and the CIA has dealt with it, or someone has dealt with it. Maybe Mossad, they're good at that stuff. Maybe MI6, they're sometimes good at that stuff. Probably not Canada. Almost definitely not Canada. Um, though I've heard they run some pretty good mil sims. Um, but yeah, probably it's already happened. Probably someone dealt with it. Uh, I, you know, I would not be surprised if there was some kind of situation involving uh, nuclear material or a bomb in Serbia. I would not be surprised if there was one in, uh, the, uh, in Fallujah, in the Middle East, in Afghanistan. Would not be surprised if one has made its way through France at some point. Um, generally, we lack an understanding as a people of just how close we have come and just how many times. The unclassified information tells us maybe about a dozen times we've come close to uh, nuclear Armageddon. And there was one with, uh, what was it, the, the misreading of the... Uh, yeah, it's like a fucking bear. Bear scratches, <laughs> a bear fucking hits your fence. A bear walks into your fence and the military defense system says, ah, yes, this is the American military. Like... <laughs> How do you mistake a bear for the? I I understand how you do. I'm making a joke. I remember here, but... hearing about a um when like I think during the Cold War, Russian the Russians had false uh, false alarms and they were yeah, they had to a false launch, alarm. Yeah. They were about to launch it. Yes, dude. they were about to launch yeah. nukes and one start man. World War Three. One that man, actually, one no. man saved, so stopped that, up and saved the world. That actually happened three times. Really? Three different times. One of them was during the Cuban Missile Crisis. There was a uh, submarine commander who lost contact with the Kremlin, assumed they had already been nuked, was preparing to launch a nuclear torpedo. That's a thing. Nuclear torpedoes. Do not get me started about status six because I will not shut up. About, about what? Status six. We could do a whole episode on it. <laughs> we'll save it for If later. we talk about status six, I am legitimately going to have a hard time. Like, I am going to go home and I'm going to have to stare at the sink for like an hour. <laughs> Can I get <laughs> like, like a you know, gist of what status is? No, 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 no. No, no. We need to get into the other two scenarios. All right, one bomb, right. one coast. Yeah. So that's anyway. That's all we'll be left. So anyway, Dan, what were the other Oh, two? yeah, and uh, no warning. Sorry. What were, the, what were the other two instances of almost nuclear annihilation? Yeah, so there was the one, um, so there's Abel Archer, uh, where basically the Americans were doing an exercise on paper, experimenting with NATO forces, and the Russians intercepted their communications, oh, and they thought, oh, there's an invasion happening, so they prepped all their forces and then didn't press the trigger. Um, there's the situation with the bear, fucking bears, um, and then there's the situation with the uh, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, where there was a guy in a sub... He didn't pull the trigger. He was told to. Didn't pull it. Uh, and those are just the ones we fucking know about. Well, with that, uh, yeah, it's going to be a you? short episode. It's going to be a short one. Um, about 42 minutes in, so we're going to... Zach, I'm so sorry. I, probably, I, I think that I've single-handedly just given this man anxiety. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. I, now I have to worry about that every fucking night. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, Nervous gonna, laughter kicking in. We're going to end it there. Um, and we're probably going to pick up on a different... Topic. We'll probably talk about your nuclear torpedo. Um, I would love to talk about my nuclear torpedo. We can talk oh, about that one. Um, this one was literally an impromptu kind of meeting, well, podcast. There's no really format for this one. So good to know they were able to have a good conversation over cake and uh, whiskey. whiskey. Dude, this smart. cake is spectacular. It's probably has cracking in it. it, it <laughs> yeah. If I become an addict, Once you go I'm, crack, I'm you can't go back. You're having a yellow cake, my guy. Having the yellow cake. But with that Looking being like said, it, like it's crack. <laughs> uh, we're going to end it here. Um, 
Much peace. God bless. Stay love.